Well, the genesis of this series was a trip to Israel. Laura and I finally broke down and said, all right, we are going to go to Israel. There have been opportunities over the past couple of decades to go, but we had a predisposition that we didn't want to just take groups and do tourism to Israel. We really wanted to do teaching tours. And to make a long story short, Laura found a company that uh, we went with on this trip, and we were kind of checking out how they did things. We've been really pleased with them. The logistics, we met their guides, we met their people on the ground in Israel, and uh, we really think this will be this will fit with what we want to do, which is see Israel, but also grow our faith. So we'll start leading some teaching tours here pretty soon. Laura's on, uh, trying to schedule the first couple of trips uh, right now, and so we'll probably start leading some discipleship, some teaching tours to Israel, and that's effectively what this was. So we, uh, we had a good time. We ate well. We've, I've never been searched so much in my life. They take their security very seriously there, but we were never felt unsafe. It was, it was a great, great trip. We uh, started out in the desert, and I'll just tell you, if I had to ride a camel across the desert, I would not have made it to the promised land. I don't know how the Israelites did it, but they are, they are let's just put it this way, they're creatures that don't really have a good personality. You know, they're just not, not really very nice. Well, this series, what I'd like to do is simply treat it like a visit to Israel. What we are going to do in this series is we're going to go to some different places in the country of Israel as though we were on a tour. We're going to see what it looks like. We're going to talk about the geography. We're going to talk about the history. In most of the times, we're going to talk about the politics, both ancient and modern politics, and how that shapes our understanding of the Bible stories. And so every lesson, wherever we are in Israel, we will talk about what happened there and some of the Bible stories, and we'll see if we can't make that come alive. Well, let's start with a map of Israel as it exists today, and that'll be kind of our starting point, and then we're going to quickly go back in history. But Israel today is, bro, I like this map because I think it does a pretty good job of showing you uh, kind of how the, the country's laid out at this point in time. But the area in light shade are Israeli areas. You see the large green West Bank, which Israel controls, but is, uh, is also under the rule of the Palestinians. So it's the Palestinian West Bank area. If you ever wondered where that is, that's that green area. The Gaza Strip over on the coast is the purple area. That's also an enclave that Israel effectively controls, but Hamas is the governing, the indigenous governing authority for the Gaza Strip right now. And then uh, the Golan Heights up in the north, north of the Sea of Galilee. Israel acquired that territory, shall we say, in one of their wars and has kept that territory. And so we'll also be visiting the Golan Heights during uh, this time period. But that's kind of the modern state of Israel. I'd also like to talk to you just about the, uh, a little bit of the geography, because the geography of Israel plays very much into a lot of what happens in the Bible. So this map's a little harder to see. This is the one I put on your handout, so you can kind of look at it a little bit later. There's a lot on it. But what I want to show you are the geographical regions, and we're going to visit all of them in the course of our trip through the Holy Land. But starting over by the Mediterranean Sea, along the coast is the coastal plain. 
That area looks like, I mean, when you're standing there looking out over the Mediterranean, it could just be a Mediterranean resort. It's very lush, it's very fertile, and now that's where Israelis live. In ancient times, that's where the Phoenicians and the Philistines lived, and the Israelis were in the not-so-prime real estate. But the coastal plain is very flat, it's very fertile, it's a great place. As you move eastward, inland, you come to what's called the Shephelah. The Shephelah are low hills. It's kind of the transition between the coastal plain and the mountains we'll see in just a minute. But in a very short distance, Israel's not very, very wide. I mean, it's not a big country at all, maybe about the size of Massachusetts. But from east to west, by the way, uh, an F-16 can traverse the country from east to west in seven seconds. I mean, it's just not very wide. But as you leave the coastal plain, you come into the Shephelah, you come into some hills, and that's going to figure heavily in some of our lessons and some of the sites that will be because it uh, was a trade route. And so that Shephelah, a lot of biblical events happen in that area. As we continue to go eastward, the third geographical area would be the mountains. You come up into a mountainous area, sometimes called the Judean wilderness, uh, the Judean mountains, but there's a mountain uh, all the way going, all the way up from around where Jerusalem is up to the north in the Sea of Galilee. There's a mountain range through there. Very hard to traverse that area. Uh, it's a difficult place to, to uh, go, and so you don't see people going north and south down that mountain range. You see all the activity happening in the passes, in the valleys that cut through there. And then finally, one more geographical area. As you go east, you come down out of those mountains into the Jordan River Valley, which is part of a larger, huge rift valley, down into the Dead Sea, way below sea level. But as you come out of those mountains, you come down into a rift valley, and that's where the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and then feeds into the Dead Sea. We'll also visit those sites in our series as well as we go through that. But in that relatively short amount of time, you get into four really distinct geographical zones. And things in the Bible happen in those places because of some of the geography there. And we'll try to point that out as we go. The other thing, as long as we're here, that I'd like to point out to you, you can't tell it as well from this map, but everywhere from about Jerusalem down near the Dead Sea up to the north is fairly fertile with the most fertile land being up around the, in the Galilee area, up around the Sea of Galilee. It's very fertile land up there. When we get to the lessons in those places, you're going to notice a, a, just a real distinction because you can grow anything there. And they do grow everything there. But the whole southern half is pretty arid and desert. And so Israel, one of the things you'll see is how, how prominently agriculture figures in, not just today, but also in ancient times, because you really don't have that much land to grow food and to uh, irrigate for the whole country. So that whole southern half, which you cannot tell as well on this, is very dry, very arid, and not a lot of, uh, there's some mining and some other things happen there, but not a lot of agriculture happening there. Well, on our trip through the Holy Land, we're going to start down in that southern section we're going to start down in what's called the Negev Desert in the southern part of Israel, and specifically, 
We're going to be in the wilderness or the desert. I don't like that word wilderness because it's kind of, it, it misleads us. But we're going to be in the desert of Zin. If you look carefully, you'll see it on this map, but I'll show you later on another map uh, that little better picture of where it is. We are going to enter the land of Israel the way the Israelites did. And so I'd like to take you back to 1400 years before the time of Christ and let's travel with the Israelites into the land of Israel, into this desert of Zin. This map goes back to 1400 BC and it's a map of Egypt on the left, the Sinai Peninsula in the middle, which is Egyptian territory, and then north into Israel. To the right of this screen is Saudi Arabia today. This is what the world looked like when Moses was born. Moses is born in Egypt, and you know his story. He grows up in the palace, he kills one of the Egyptians, and then he flees. He's basically banished. When he leaves, he goes out through the Sinai Peninsula into a land called Midian. If you look at the kind of near the bottom right of this map in what's now Saudi Arabia, you'll see the, the land of Midian. And he goes there and he becomes a shepherd for 40 years in the deserts of Midian, tending his flocks, building a family. He thinks he's through. Uh, he doesn't know that he's got a part to play in God's story at all. He thinks that former life is gone, and now he's building a new life in that area. Until one day, he sees the burning bush. You may remember this story from the book of Exodus. And God calls him for a purpose and sends him back to Egypt to rescue the Israelites from their slavery and their oppression in Egypt. And so Moses goes back to the land of Goshen, the area of Goshen, up near that fertile Nile River Delta. I mean, the Israelites are living in prime real estate in Egypt. I mean, everything grows there. It's a great place to live. Unfortunately, they're slaves, and their lives aren't very good, but they live in a really uh, great place to live in terms of having plenty of food, uh, the Nile River there. It's a, it's a safe and it's a good place to live. Well, Moses comes back, and you remember the story. He confronts Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. And so, sure enough, they leave. He takes them out, and they begin to wander. The blue line on this map kind of charts the journey of the Israelites. They leave Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They go down the Sinai Peninsula. They come back up the Sinai Peninsula into this southern part of Israel, what is now Israel, into the desert of Zin. And this is what they saw. This is a, a photo that we took of while we were there, and I just I wanted to give you one of our photos because it just really struck me how absolutely barren this place is. I mean, you talk about the promised land. If I saw this, I'd go, not a good promise. You know, this, this is not what we had in mind, right? But this is what the desert of Zin looks like for as far as you can see, as far as it seems like you can go. And that's where Moses brought the Israelites. They came into that desert of Zin, and because of a failure of their faith, a failure of their commitment, they're going to spend 38 years in this desert. This desert was a challenge for them. I took, uh, another pi I took a picture just of the ground because I didn't realize this, but when I think of desert, I think of sand. This isn't sand. 
It's just plain hard-baked dirt, and there are rocks everywhere. You know how much the Israelites complained about being there? I'd complain too, because there is no place that doesn't look exactly like that. I just want you to think about this. Where are you going to put up your tent and actually find a nice place to lay down? That's what I'm thinking when I'm there is, where are you going to sleep? You know, it'd take you an hour to move the rocks just to get a flat place here. But that's, that's literally what the whole place looks like. It is as uninviting a place as you can probably imagine. Well, the Israelites found it to be a very uninviting place too. As they get into the desert, they pause pretty quickly in their journey. And in the book of Exodus chapter 16, this is what they say to Moses. The story says the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Zin, or Sin, depending on how they translate it in your version, but the desert of Zin. And on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. They're a little melodramatic. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. And that's true. At least had plenty of food. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Well, sure enough, they got up every morning and that's what they looked at. And if you look at that, you don't see a lot of food, do you? There are no trees at all. What you see in that picture is the tallest thing in that whole place. About like that. I mean, there's just, there are no trees. You don't see any animals roaming around out there. There's just not much there. And they think they're going to starve. And you know, there's an interesting lesson to that too. They're not used to this. God's brought them to a place that they've never been before. I mean, they all grew up in Egypt and true, their life was hard. They were slaves. But my point is, is that in terms of the hardship of where they live, they had plenty of food. They were living in a very fertile area. They've never been anywhere like this. And so now God's led them into this place, and they're like, hey, we have no idea how to survive here. But who does? Moses. Moses spent 40 years in a place that makes this look like a resort, okay, over in the deserts of Saudi Arabia. And so while Moses, and there's a really good little faith lesson to this, while Moses is over there thinking, I'm done. God's story with me is done. I'm going to be a husband, a father. I'm going to herd these sheep. I'm going to go to a soccer game or something on the weekend, maybe get in a round of golf, you know. But that's kind of it. This is the end of my life. I'm of no more use to God. And yet look what happens. Here they are in the middle of this desert, part of their journey of God's destiny for them, and the only guy on this trip that has any familiarity with this is the guy God picked to lead it. And there's a really great lesson there for you and for me, because I know sometimes we get to places in our life and we go, you know, I've never been here before, never faced this challenge before. And Moses felt that way too, but when you get there, God prepares us for the things he leads us into. That's true for Moses and it's true for us just as well. So God prepares us for the challenges ahead just like he prepared Moses, and he's in the process here of preparing the Israelites as well. Well, this is oftentimes on your maps called the wilderness of Zin. But I don't like that because to Americans, what does wilderness mean? State park, forest, streams, deer, 
Buffalo, you know, when we think of a wilderness, we just think of a place like a jungle or a forest. No, just X that out anywhere in your Bible you see it and write in desert, you know. When they talk about the wilderness of Judea, the wilderness of Zin, it's a desert, okay? And so it's, it looks like this. In fact, the Israelites, there's so much of this kind of land, they actually have several words for desert. In other words, for example, they have a word, a Hebrew word called yeshimon, Y-E-S-H-I-M-O-N, and that is an utterly barren, desolate place. Next week... I will show you a yeshimon. It's worse than this. They have a couple of other words, uh, tziah and rabah are both words for a dry, dry area, a desert. That would be kind of like an area where you're walking through a desert, but you know at the end of the day, there'll be somewhere to water your flocks. There'll be some kind of an oasis or something. There may not be water around. There may not be a 7-Eleven nearby, but at the end of the day, you're going to be at a place where you can find water and you'll be in an oasis or something, but it's still a dry area. That's called a tziah. Another word for desert is called a midbar. This is actually the best desert that you can be in because a midbar is actually you can take your flocks with you and you can graze them. Any guess what this is? This is the midbar. This is the good place. I mean, the Israelites come into this area and they've got some flocks with them. They've got some cattle. They've got flocks. And now where they're going to feed, who knows? But they managed out here, right? This is the good desert. This is the Midbar, the desert of Zin. This is a place where you actually can live. And they lived there for 38 years. But the, the uh, Israelites have a lot of words for that because they have a lot of this in their geography. The desert of Zin gets about two inches of rainfall a year. It rains there on average four days during the year. Laura and I were lucky enough to be there one of those days. <laughs> Felt like it was pretty momentous. I mean, we actually got soaked one day for about an hour. I mean, it really you know, wasn't, wasn't very much. And all the Israelis were just joyous. Then I realized, oh, this is one of the four days, you know, that it's going to rain here. This is probably a fourth of the rain they're going to get all year. So they were pretty happy about the rain. I was just mad about being wet. But they were pretty excited. So they don't get very much. Well, this is where the Israelites are. And they're struggling with this. And so they ask Moses, what's God up to? Did you bring us out here to kill us? I mean, really, where are we going to get any food? Well, the interesting thing is that God answers them. A little further in Exodus, a little further in that same chapter, Moses comes from the Lord and he says this. He said, God will send you quail. And sure enough, in the evening, the quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, little thin flakes like frost were all over the ground. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is that? Now, this tells you how inventive they were. Guess what the Hebrew word for what is it? Manna. And so they said, it's who knows. We're going to call it manna. What is that stuff, right? And so they didn't know what it was, but Moses said to them, this is the bread that the Lord is going to supply to you for you to eat. Everybody gather every morning as much as you want. And sure enough, it goes on to say, everybody gathered as much as they want, 
wanted every morning. Each one gathered as much as he needed. He says, and not only was it sustenance, but a little later in the chapter, it says this. They called the bread manna, and it was white, and it tasted like wafers made with honey. I mean, it tasted good. And so what's happening here? Basically, the people get to a place and they go, how are we going to make it, God? And they turn to the Lord and they go, how can we survive this? How can we make it? We're unprepared for this. And God provides for them in a way they never could have, could have uh, predicted. Because God's doing something with them here. There's a reason the Israelites enter the promised land through the desert of Zin and not through the area of Galilee where they walk in and go, wow, this is an awesome place. Let's set up a resort over here, and we're going to you know, put up a tire swing here and swim in the lake, and you guys go get the boats, and we'll start fishing. And you know, There's a reason God brought them in here, because in this desert, God is teaching Israel to have faith. That's the thing Israel lacks here, is they lack faith. They lack trust. You notice... That and this isn't, I'm not criticizing them for this because I'd be the same way. But from the time they leave Egypt, as you read the book of Exodus, what are they focused on? They're focused on their basic needs. How are we going to make it here? Who's going to feed us? Who's going to help us? And God realizes if they don't have enough faith that God will provide the basic necessities of life, how in the world are they going to conquer the promised land? Have you ever thought about that? Here you have these people, and God says, this is your land. I'm going to be with you. You're going to conquer this land. You're going to thrive here. And these people are wondering, when's dinner? And so God is going to have to build their faith. They're going to have to trust God with the easy things in life before they can tackle the bigger things that God has in plan for them. And you know, same lesson for you and me today. How often am I focused on the small things? I think as I think on my prayers, how often are my prayers about where's my bread going to come from? Where are we going to get water? How are we going to live in this desert? You know, just interpret that in the modern version of that. How often am I really focused on the small things in life? And God has to be looking at me sometimes and say, you know, until you can trust me with these, how can you tackle the promised land? that I have for you. In fact, that's what Jesus is talking about over in Matthew chapter 6. You're going to remember this. In the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches them to pray. And one of my favorite lines in this prayer goes all the way back to this time in history, the time when the Israelites find themselves in this barren, inhospitable place. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Kingdom come, thy will be done, earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. He doesn't say, now here's Terry's version. Could I get today's bread and the next week or so? And could you put a deposit in the bank so I'm pretty sure I'll be able to eat for the rest of the year? But what's Jesus' prayer? Give us today our daily bread. If I've got enough for the rest of the year, and I'm not telling you there's anything wrong with your bank accounts, I want to make the point about our faith and the Israelites' faith, then am I relying on God? If you know that you're going to have to get up in the morning and trust God that the manna will be there, what do you think that does for our faith? Same for you and me. And that was Jesus' prayer. He said, give me enough. 
Give me what I need, and I'll trust you every day to give me what I need. That's how we build faith. We find ourselves in places like this as well. Sometimes we find ourselves in the desert places of life, the hard times of life. And I want you to understand that as unpleasant as those things are, as unpleasant as this time period was for Israel, God had a purpose for them. They could not have achieved what they did later unless they built their faith in this place. And you know, we've seen that to be true in our lives too. The times we've come through the desert, so to speak, are times when we've come out with something we didn't even know that we needed, with a skill, with a faith. And that's what God's doing with Israel, is he's building their faith. It's not a coincidence, by the way, and I'll tell you the way that I think God uses this for us today. It's not a coincidence that in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus talks about, give us this day our daily bread, in a few short verses later, he's going to have this famous teaching that says, why are you anxious about things? Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. In other words, what's he saying? He says, you're, we're so filled with anxiety about the future. We worry, we fret, we're anxious about the future. And Jesus says, let's learn to say this, give us this day our daily bread. That's what's happening to Israel. They lived in a land where they never had to wonder where the food was going to come from. They moved to a place where they did, and God said, let me teach you something about how I will provide for you. Israel's building faith in the desert. That's the first lesson that they had to learn. And I would argue that's a lesson that for us isn't going to lead to where we'll get our food or what we're going to wear. What it's going to lead to is a great reduction in our anxiety and our stress level. The one thing, the one thing that you can do to reduce your worry and your stress is simply that. Learn that one lesson. Trust God every day, day by day that he can supply our needs today, he will supply our needs tomorrow. There's a reason God didn't just say, hey, guess what, Israel? Instead of this manna thing where you're going to have to trust me every day, I've just put a big old stockpile. Walk down there and there's a huge supermarket and I've got your whole trip taken care of for you. That's not going to build any faith. And the same is true for us. Questions? Good. Let's move on. Although the Israelites really didn't move on very much. They really did. Of the 40 years wandering in the desert, 38 years was pretty much on that spot right there. Actually, they moved around, but it all looked like that. Can you imagine how boring it would get that you have no scenery? Where are we going to go today? Oh, we're going to go 10 miles over there. wonder what that'll be like. That. Just like where we came from. And, you know, they get grumpy. They start to get a little grumpy about it. You know, it's like, hey, this place never looks any different. There's no scenery here. Why'd you bring us here? Well, he takes them to Mount Sinai. I'm going to show you how they continue to struggle a little bit. And when they get to Mount Sinai and they get the Ten Commandments, they get the law, which we call the law of Moses. He told them all the Lord's laws and words. They knew they had the manna. They're beginning to trust God. They realize, you know, this God is trustworthy. Not only did he bring us out of Egypt and do a big old miracle, but he actually kind of does little miracles every day. He's really trustworthy to take care of us. And they said, we will do all the things the Lord said. We are in. 
We are gods. We are faithful followers. So they go back into the desert, and they continue to live and dwell there, and it only takes them a few chapters, about seven chapters before Moses goes up on the mountain, and the people saw he took a long time to come down, and they said, you know what? Why don't we make ourselves some gods that will go in front of us? This fellow Moses, we don't actually know where he went, and we don't know what's happened to him, but I'll tell you what, this God, God, let's go ahead and make ourselves some gods. And so what do they do? They gather up all their gold, they cast a golden calf. A lot of significance to that, because back in Egypt, that was a powerful God. So what have they done? They've kind of slipped back, haven't they? Instead of trusting God, they thought, no, we're going to kind of go back to the old ways. In fact, let's make this calf, and then anybody know the way back to Egypt? You know, slavery's not looking so bad at this point. That's what Israel is doing at this point. The other thing God did with them, in addition to testing and demonstrating to them their need for faith, is that Israel found their identity in the desert. These people thought of themselves. Let me stop and think about this for a minute. You're here, God has brought you out of Egypt in an unbelievably miraculous way. You get into the middle of nowhere, into the desert, and God is providing for your needs. Is it as comfortable as you want? It gets to around 110 degrees is pretty routine in this area. So it's just a little balmy. You know, it's a little warm. But the point is, they're surviving in a place they didn't think they could survive. But what do they want to do? They want to go back to something that's comfortable. They still think of themselves as slaves. They don't yet have the vision of who God sees them being. So not only do they not have enough faith to tackle the promised land that God has in mind for them, they don't even think they're that kind of people. Does that make sense? God's not only building their faith, he needs to show them who they really are. This incident shows us what they thought. They thought that they had to have a place that was comfortable. They needed the security of Egypt even though they were slaves there. They were willing to sell their freedom for that. The desert has always represented and always represents in the Bible a place to find your faith and a place to find your identity. And I don't mean by that the kind of the psychobabble, figure out who I am, to find your identity in God. Who does God say that you are? And it takes a place like this sometimes for us to realize who we really are, who we really can be. Think about Moses. Moses thought he was a failure when he leaves Egypt. He goes into the desert, and he lives there for 40 years, in his case. And in that time period, Moses gets shaped into someone who can literally go be one of the greatest figures in the Jewish religion. He, can, he successfully leads them out of Egypt. Who would have thought that? Moses didn't think that. Moses, it took that time in the desert for him to see who God saw. Think in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. Remember on that road to Damascus, and he sees that light, and he has that unbelievable conversion experience? You know what he did after that? He went away into the desert, 14 years. He didn't just go in and start preaching and said, hey, I'm the Apostle Paul, I'm gonna write half the New Testament. You know, that's not what he did next. 
he withdrew into the desert because he had to find his identity in Christ, literally. What does God have laid out for me? God told him, he said, Paul, you are going to take my message to all the Gentiles. Well, that's a daunting task. The problem with that was Paul didn't see himself that way. It took a desert experience. It took that time of refinement for him to actually agree with God that, you know what, I think I am who you think I am. And that's true for you and me as well. A lot of times, the only thing standing between us and what God has in mind for us is our faith and our identity. Do we see ourselves as that kind of person? I mean, that plays itself out in so many ways. It plays itself out with addictions. I mean, that's probably the most prominent way we think about it. We begin when we are enslaved by something, just like the Israelites did. At some point, we begin to think of ourselves as being enslaved. We begin to think of ourselves as, that's not something I can do. That's not something that I can beat. We get trapped into situations in our lives, and we begin to become complacent with it. We begin to think of ourselves that way just like the Israelites. They hated being slaves, but they thought of themselves as slaves. The desert experiences, the desert places, are where we find the identity that God has for us. Here's the way I like to say this. God took Israel out of Egypt, but the desert took Egypt out of Israel. Let me say that again. Don't you think about that. God brought Israel out of Egypt but it took this time in the desert to get the Egypt out of the Israelites, to get them to think about themselves in the way God saw them. Well, that's what they're doing here. They are spending their time in this desert, and it seems pointless, and it seems like it's taking forever, and they begin to wrestle with their doubts, and they begin to wrestle with Moses, and they begin slowly to realize the God who can sustain us here can sustain us anywhere. The former slaves in Egypt are slowly beginning to realize, you know what? Maybe we can inhabit the promised land. Maybe we really are who God thinks we are. So I would just encourage you when you're in those desert times in your life, when you're trapped in the, quote, slavery of Egypt, to realize that God will bring us through that desert with a renewed sense of who we are, with a stronger faith and with a faith that's going to unlock the capability to actually be who he says that we are. Question? Yes, just one. Does manna exist now, today? Does manna exist today? No, in fact, uh, the, the manna ceased when the Israelites no longer needed it. And so, no, there's no manna out there. What you see is pretty much what you get. I mean, I actually don't know that there's any food out there that I've seen. Now, there obviously has to be some food in that area, but let me just put it this way. We didn't pass by any towns out there. So the idea of the manna was something that God provided. That was kind of a miraculous thing that happened. There's no manna on the ground now. That's a good question. 
It was something that God did as a sign. Now, if you stop and think about it, if you're God, you're the creator of the universe, you can solve this problem any way that you want to. I mean, you could decide that, hey, there'll be uh, a herd of, uh, you know, Kobe beef come over the horizon, right? And so it's going to be steaks for everybody, right? I mean, if you, literally, if you're going to supernaturally solve this problem and you can just snap your fingers and solve it any way you want, you've got a lot of choices. But it's really instructive that that's how God solved that issue because God's primary concern wasn't what they were going to eat. It's who they were going to become. And that's true for us, too. And I know that may be bad news. You're like, oh, no, I really need a God who's really concerned about my comfort, about my security, about my health. And God does care about those things, but God cares far more. As the New Testament says, he wants to refine our faith, which is more precious than gold, and that our faith, unlike gold, which will eventually burn up in the fire, our faith never burns up. And so don't be surprised if God's primary purpose in our life is to use the events around us to refine us into people of faith, people who can achieve and can do the things God's called us to do. And Israel learned that in this area. I mean, in this time in the desert, Israel learned that. Well, I don't want you to think, though, we move on to one other interesting feature in the desert of Zen. I don't want you to think there's literally no water here. There's almost no water here. But when it rains, the few times it rains, what happens here is the water tends to channel into any low place. This is called Wadi Zin. Wadi is an Arabic word, and it just basically means a, a low place. But fundamentally what it is, is it's a place where flash floods happen. When it rains out there, it's like raining on concrete. The ground doesn't soak the water up. It just runs off, and it runs into the low places. It runs into these wadis, and it just literally floods them. And so you'll see water in the wadis, not all the time, but more often. And when it rains, you're going to see a torrent go down the wadis. Wadi Zin, in the desert of Zin, is one of the largest wadis in all of Israel, and it is a huge place. Another picture just to give you some contrast with the road there. It is a huge place that's been sculpted out. And the water drains from everywhere around there into that wadi of Zin. The problem with it is the water doesn't last very long. It just runs off. And so in some of our lessons where people do live in these desert areas, you're going to, we'll talk about this next time, they came up with some pretty ingenious ways to trap and use that water. Now, that's not technology that the Israelites have at that time. They don't have the technology to trap and use that water like they, they will a little bit later. And so, but they are aware of the wadis, and that's where you're going to find some, if you're going to have water, that's where it's going to be. And when it rains, this is where it's going to be in large volumes. You know, one of the really interesting things and these water, I'll give you a kind of a close-up view as you're looking down into this. One of the interesting things about this is there isn't any vegetation growing, really, and not much anyway, at the bottom of these wadis. Why? Because when it rains, it's a flood. What you tend to see is you see vegetation growing kind of up the sides. And you'll see plants like this that are growing up the side of the wadi, and strangest thing, you'll see roots, just bare roots, 
going down 10, 20 yards down to where there's going to be water when it does flood. And that was such a great picture for me when I saw that. You see this vegetation on the side and this dry, dry land, and then you see this root snaking its way down, and when the water comes, it's going to be underwater. That plant is going to be nourished. It's not going to be swept away in the flood. It's going to be nourished because it sent the roots down to wait on the water when it comes. The uh, really great lesson uh, there to me is a beautiful psalm, by the way. The psalms come alive in this area. The psalms of David when he's out in the desert of Zin and when he's in the other wilderness areas just literally come alive. This psalm is beautiful. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. His delights in the law of the Lord and on the law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and its leaves don't wither up. That's trees planted by water in the desert. It's not like you know, the Oklahoma River where there's just always water. You have to wait on the water. Give us this day our daily bread. There are times when there's nothing there around those roots, but it's going to come. And when it does come, it's going to nourish that tree. It's going to cause it to flower and have fruit in season. You know, as I'm standing there looking at that, I realize, boy, that is so true for us. There are seasons in our life where we just don't feel nourished. We feel like we're stressed. We feel like we're facing the hurdles, the burdens. And the lesson here is as though if we will put our roots down, and David equates that to, if we will meditate on the law of the Lord, if we will follow his way, be faithful to him, that's our version of putting a root down into where the water's going to come. Then the water will surely come, and we will have those fruitful seasons in our life. That's what David's saying in that psalm. He says, the man who trusts in the Lord doesn't walk in the way of the sinners. He doesn't chase the water over there but he's willing to put the root down in the way of the Lord, is like a tree planted by the water, and in time the water comes and the tree flourishes. You see how this picture in the desert, you see the theme that runs through that with Israel, and I think with us as well, is the idea there is the desert requires us to rely on God. The desert teaches us patience. We will thrive, and we will thrive as God brings the water to bless us. That's the lesson Israel learned in the desert. And I think it's a powerful lesson for us too. That's why Israel starts their journey into the promised land in probably the most inhospitable place in the entire land of Israel. Question? Um, do we know how many Israelites came out of Egypt and in turn how many Israelites actually entered into the promised land? Good question. The scripture talks about about 600,000 men at one point in this journey. And so just the traditional number that people quote is a couple million Israelites. In other words, a very large, large, I mean, that's a, that's, that number itself is not in the scripture. But the idea is that Israel had grown into a very large nation. You read the first part of Exodus, even though they're slaves, they're thriving. The reason Pharaoh is imprisoning them is he's kind of afraid that they're getting really, really numerous here. 
and he begins to be more and more oppressive. So Israel's a fairly large, a large group of people as they come, which leads me to another thing. We talk about them wandering in the desert. I don't want you to be misled. This isn't wandering like Terry is lost on vacation and I don't know where to go. They're not more than about a day's trip from, quote, civilization. If you remember your map, if you look on the map that I gave you on the handout, the desert of Zin is not very far from the towns and all of the people who inhabit the land of Canaan. Those people know that the Israelites are sitting out there camped in the desert. And the Israelites know exactly where they need to go to get to better land. When they says they're wandering in the desert, they're not far from civilization. They can see the lights of the mall at night on the edge of the horizon. They're not lost in the desert. And that's another thing that kind of led them to some of their frustrations. Like, you know, we go about a day's journey that way, we're going to get to civilization. And God says, but you don't have the faith to tackle that challenge yet. So, good question. Um, how did they get water? Did God provide it like he provided the manna and the quail, or did they have to find it? Yeah, good question. How did they find the water? And you'll see as you read uh, Exodus that they uh, do come upon some areas that have water, but you're going to see them gripe to Moses about, we're, we're dying of thirst. Remember Moses striking the rock and the water coming out of that? So there's, they do find water. There is water in some places here, but God also provides that. They never get to the point where we're going to die. We just don't have enough water. God gives them what they need when they need it. So uh, on occasions, God miraculously provides water to them as well. Good question. Well, this lesson, I hope you, you see from the geography of this how absolutely uninviting it is. And I know if you and I were planning a tour and we said, hey, two million Israelites, I'm going to take you to the promised land. This is not where you would take them first. And you know that's true for you and me too. I can't help making the parallels for you. This is the way God works with his people, then and now. He's not probably literally going to take you into a desert that looks like that. Although, in one of my former jobs, Altus Air Force Base was a client of mine, and I'm pretty sure he led me literally into a place like that, because that's what it looks like in Altus. But, okay, leaving that aside, He's not necessarily going to literally take you to that kind of place, but he is spiritually going to take you to that place. You go, wait a minute, how could God take me to the spiritually hard places? That's what Israel asked. Lord, how could you take me out of the land of Goshen and bring me here? And God said, you were slaves there, and you still think you're slaves. And we do too. We're enslaved to what? To our stuff, to our stress. We tend to get captivated by the things in life that aren't good for us. And God says, I will take you spiritually to a desert because I want you to build your faith, your trust in me, and then I want you to see who you really are. That's how God unlocks us, and that's what he did with Israel. And I just wanted you to see the graphic of that because all of a sudden when you see that, you realize, yeah, wait a minute, that doesn't make much sense. No wonder the Israelites were grumbling. But then you realize, ah, God's purpose was to prepare them for something far greater. And that's always true for you and me as well. When we're in the spiritual desert, I want you to have the confidence and the faith that God has not left me here. 
He never abandoned the Israelites there. He is not going to abandon you in your spiritual desert. He is going to bring us through this desert, and I will be something greater on the other side. Powerful lesson out of the desert. Well, in our next lesson, I'm going to take you to a, a, a specific site. It's not just the trackless wastes of the desert. We're going to move just a little bit north over to the Dead Sea, or the Sea of Salt, as they call it. And we're going to go to Masada, which is truly desolate. Literally, it makes this place look like a resort. And the caves of Qumran are there, and there's some very interesting stories out of that as well. And so we're going to go to Masada, we're going to go to Qumran, and we're going to talk about the scrolls, and we're going to talk about how in the world did anybody live there. Well, not only did somebody live there, but in those days, one of the world's richest men lived there. And I'll tell you about that next time. Thanks.